censorship files? According to new reporting from Public, a whistleblower has come forward with explosive documents describing activities of an anti-disinformation group called the Cyber Threat Intelligence League, offering a glimpse into the birth of anti-disinformation, or what others have called the censorship industrial complex. Mm. Joining us now to discuss is journalist at Public and CBR Chair in Politics, Censorship, and Free Speech at the University of Austin, Michael Schellenberger. Michael, welcome. So great to have you in studio in person. <laughs> it's great to be here. Well, we're so happy to have you here to discuss uh, your really terrific and important reporting on the origins of this anti-disinformation uh, movement, this, this group of intelligence officials and bureaucrats and social media moderators and so-called experts in various places who came together, started these organizations that we're now, that we're grappling with and that we discuss on the show a lot, how they've threatened free speech. So, so tell us um, you know, what you've learned and what you expose in this piece. Sure. Well, this is, as you mentioned, it's the, the CTIL Files. This is an organization that started really in 2019, but then started getting up and running in 2020. We only know about this because a very patriotic whistleblower delivered a huge tranche of new files to us. And it's impressive because it's a really complete set of documents, so you can see exactly what they were doing. But what's so terrifying about this case is that the people that were running it were military contractors, including working for the U.S. Navy at the time. One of them was British. One of them was American. There were many other people involved. There were people involved from Microsoft. There was a so-called so former Israeli intelligence um, person who was involved. So you really start to see, because of course you always had people that had been in the CIA or had been in intelligence agencies sort of involved in this, but then they had said, well, we're no longer doing that or we're associated with an academic institution. Here you really see a much more direct connection. And I think you see two parts of the censorship industrial complex in the CTIL files that are really important. The first is the use of supposedly non-governmental organizations as the people to go and demand the censorship. That shows an awareness that they know that the government can't be demanding censorship uh, by social media platforms, an awareness that the First Amendment prohibits that. Um, and then the second part of it that I think was so important in this case is they said, these people are all volunteers, you know, that this is that these are folks that even if they might be working for the government, and we have Slack messaging channels with people from the Department of Homeland Security in the channel, with people from Facebook and people from CTIL. So this is uh, just, it really reveals, I think, what was happening to combine these forces and to sort of dress it up as though it was kind of an act, a form of activism, a form of advocacy, grassroots advocacy, rather than something that was clearly coming out of the intelligence and military communities. You write in your piece that the whistleblower alleged, alleged that a leader of the CTI League, a former British intelligence analyst, was in the room at the Obama White House in 2017 when she received the instructions to create a counter-disinformation project to stop a repeat of 2016. Is this really all still about Russiagate? And when you talk about it being an activist movement, is it really about kind of liberal Democrats trying to continue to push a narrative where they sincerely believe the narrative that but for Russian interference in 2016, Donald Trump would not have won. That's sure, that sure is really what it looks like. And it's not just in that instance where there's all sorts of other evidence when you see them talking internally or even in some of the podcasts that they give, that the big motivations were Brexit and then the election of Trump in 2016. And I should say, you know, I've been involved in left-wing causes for like 30 years. And 
I have never seen, I mean, in my work, I mean, never seen anything so systematic. I mean, mostly progressive causes and activist causes are pretty disorganized. They're, pull, they're full of people that are not professionals. This was incredibly professional. This was incredibly disciplined. They were drawing on existing cybersecurity methods, but then they were extending them. So they talked about physical security, then they talked about cybersecurity, and then they added this third category called cognitive security, which is basically trying to control the information environment and control how people think. Hmm. It's very sophisticated. I mean, they, they're really using methods that come out of things like cultural anthropology. They talk about how we're not just trying to stomp out wrong facts. In fact, they say often true facts are what is behind a lot of mis- and disinformation. They say we're trying to stop these things before they become whole narratives, before they can affect people's beliefs. So, you know, on the one hand, yes, it seems like there's a lot of kind of Trump derangement syndrome, but what's so striking about it is that these are really sophisticated people, and there's a sense in which they had been practicing these strategies in other countries before they started to turn them inward on our domestic mm. population. And they, they clearly have a very, um, they think highly of themselves. Uh, they called themselves with the Hogwarts School of Misinformation. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that, uh, you know, read another book, and I'm just as guilty of that yeah. as anyone else. Yeah. Uh, it does, yeah, you, you hit on something so important there because when people hear, you know, anti-disinformation, anti-misinformation, they, they might naively think, okay, well, these are just people trying to root out, you know, false facts that are out there and, and trying to have some kind of policing of that or some kind of fact-checking apparatus. But as you point out, it's going so beyond that to trying to combat things that actually might be true yeah. but are not... Do, do not advantage what this group of people's political philosophy is. Do not, uh, is not good for Hillary Clinton Democrats. That's right. And there's sort of two big cases here. I mean, the first is on, the, and we saw this already with the Facebook files, White House demanding censorship of information that could lead to people being hesitant to take the vaccine. Right. So that resulted in, and Facebook said, we're censoring often true stories of vaccine side effects to avoid that vaccine hesitancy. So they're censoring accurate information to avoid a behavior they don't want. Um, and then, of course, the second one, or maybe not of course, but certainly comes out very strongly here, is anything that delegitimizes the system. So they, they, want, they say very specifically, we want to really defend the system. Um, this is very inappropriate, you know, to be, to be trying to manipulate people's minds in these ways. The First Amendment is, is sacrosanct, it's paramount. I think the other significant thing, there's so much detail here, people should go read the whole piece, it's a long piece. But, you know, was that this was blessed by the Department of Homeland Security's CISA, the Cybersecurity and Information Security Agency. They blessed the CTIL when it started. And I think this is the other key part of it is that it's like it's they were they were hiding the censorship initiative in a supposedly cybersecurity initiative. So they sort of hid it inside the IT guys. So you're supposedly trying to protect your systems from hackers, but now you're in the job of censoring people. And that's, I think, one of the craziest and most disturbing parts of it. So help us understand the mechanism by which these non-government actors are able to influence the censorship policies of social media companies. Yes. Well, this is, okay, so we saw this also with the Twitter files. So on the one hand, they're sort of, and this was the Hogwarts school, what they're trying to, what the leaders of this were trying to do is to create some sense of camaraderie. We're the heroes. They often refer to themselves as the janitors out there cleaning up the internet, by which they mean mm. censoring people. Um, there's a, so they're trying to get people excited about it. They're trying to recruit people to do this. Um, and, then, and then often what they're trying to do is they're going to the platforms and saying, this person's post violates your terms of service. So on the one hand, they're saying, 
hey, we're just trying to help them enforce their own rules. But then on the other side, they're trying to expand or change the terms of service to be more expansive so they can increase the amount of censorship. And in this case, as I mentioned before, I mean, these are people that actually were working on government contractors. One of the new entities, there's so many of them now, there's literally over 100 of them, but it's called Softworks, and it's an organization that's designed to do technology transfer from the Air Force to the civilian sector. And that's part of what it seems to be happening here, is they were trying to move these censorship tools out of the DOD and intelligence communities into uh, civil society, and, and, and eventually we saw into places like Stanford Internet Observatory. If I could ask a follow-up on that, though, so many people would think, in the pre-Elon era, there were a lot of, um, you know, I would say left-leaning people who would say things like, these are the terms of service and they're being disproportionately applied to one group or another. They'd say, this hate speech is being allowed, but someone who said, oh, I'm going to drink white tears uh, gets banned. And right. they would say, well, what's, what's the consistency here? And so there were these efforts to at least, whatever the terms of service were, get them evenly applied, regardless yes. of one's political orientation, which I think is a fair enough pursuit. So when you say that they're not just doing that, but they're trying to change the terms of service in a politically advantageous way, can you give us an example of that? Well, the two examples, uh, the two Twitter files I did, we saw this happening. The first was the deplatforming of Trump. So I did, um, I think Barry and, and Matt did January 6th and 8th. I did January 7th, which was when a lot of the decisions were being made. They came back and looked at, at Trump's tweets, and they were like, they don't violate our terms of service. So mm -hmm. we can't, they had to make some, they had to, they had to change their own rules in order to deplatform Trump. And the second one was on the Hunter Biden laptop. They, re they came to the conclusion internally at Twitter that the New York Post tweets and story had not violated their terms of service, that, that it was okay and it should not have been censored, and yet they found a justification to censor it anyway. You know, the social media companies, <clears throat> excuse me, have become so, uh, you, you obviously, Twitter is under new leadership, X now. Even Mark Zuckerberg has talked in podcasts about being really uncomfortable with some of the COVID-related moderation decisions that were made, obviously yeah. the Hunter Biden laptop story. We've seen in some of the dis disclosures you've done and other people have done that even as they were happening, a lot of the moderators at these companies were frustrated, frankly, mm -hmm. with the constant um, interaction that eventually was becoming interference from these the cybersecurity anti-misinformation people. Yeah. The moderators disagreeing with their conclusions in some place, fighting them, saying, actually, this list of Russian bots you just gave us are real people, right. and we're not going to do it. We don't want to do anything about it but um, feeling so much pressure to act because yes. the political uh, people, the, the so many senators and others, were, were marching in lockstep with the anti-misinformation people to threaten uh, political consequences, changes to the regulatory framework, that sort of thing. Um, where are we now in, in terms of, is there enough frustration internally? Obviously, X is under totally different leadership. Is it true at Facebook, too, that if something like COVID happened again or something like the Hunter Biden laptop happened again, would they tell these people to take a hike because they're so fed up with them and they've been these people have been exposed finally? I mean, we remain in this moment where there's just it's just chaos. Yeah. I mean, and so, I mean, look, the response from Mark Zuckerberg to getting beat up and he had a big advertiser boycott was basically just to throttle news on, on Facebook and take a... This, We've noticed. Yeah. And to yeah. take the financial hit. Same here. Yeah. Um, obviously, X uh, has news leadership and uh, it is more open and there's still things going on that are you know like particularly from other countries where you're seeing censorship demands 
my view remains that adult users, we should control our own legal content. That should be a condition of having Section 230. I hope the Supreme Court next year it will hear Missouri versus Biden. That's the big censorship right. case. I hope that that's what they require. If not, then we need at least a lot more transparency so that if you're a government official demanding censorship by a social media platform, which in my view violates the First Amendment, but if the court decides that it's okay, they should have to report it right away. That would be very easy to do. If I'm asking Facebook or, or Twitter to take something down, just, just put it out there publicly that that's what's happening. I think that's important. And then just to have overall transparency about what those algorithms, what those filters are, I think ultimately the right solution is for user control of our own content moderation. Yeah, I think that transparency point is a really big one, and not just for uh, U.S. government actors, but for foreign actors as well. I mean, I yeah. think a lot of the criticism that Elon Musk has gotten since he's taken stewardship of Twitter is that there was the incident with Modi where he seemed to concede to those censorship demands from India. And now more recently, just a week or so ago, he was saying things that were, I would say, pro-Palestine or pro-Israel, but kind of common sense statements uh, about how if you keep bombing Gaza, you're going to create more militants because they're going to be frustrated that Israel just killed their families. He takes this trip to Israel and has had a real change of tune and is now talking about how we have to censor from the river to the sea, not have a debate about that phrase, but censor it, ban it on uh, Twitter, and also the, the term decolonization if it's being applied to Israel. So, I mean, what is there to be done with respect not just to our own national rights uh, to the First Amendment, but these kind of um, external to America relationships that someone like Elon Musk increasingly is forming with global leaders. That's right. And I think that you, you mentioned also, also it was in Turkey, where we saw uh, the government demanding censorship. This had happened before Elon. Elon took over. He continued with that same path, which, you know, is debatable. But he did uh, make transparent what the requests were and what the what the what the censorship was. So in in without having user control, transparency is a second best route here. I agree with you. I would not have made the decision to uh, censor from the river to the sea. Um, I mean, I I think we need to remind ourselves that under the Supreme Court rulings. Only immediate incitement to violence is prohibited. I mean, right. really immediate. Right. We remember famously the Supreme Court allowed the neo-Nazis to march through a neighborhood of Holocaust survivors. That was in a time where people were apparently a lot more resilient to hateful speech. But hate speech is legal speech. And what is hateful is obviously in the mind of beholder. So these are things I think we just need to remind ourselves culturally and in the conversation and toughen up a little bit to allow more of this. Because like Glenn Greenwald says, yeah. If you're not defending the free speech rights of people whose speech you really hate and loathe, then yeah. your commitment to free speech means nothing. Yeah. And on social media, you, you can and should be able to have the tools to just turn that stuff off yes. if you don't want to see it. And that's absolutely fine. And that would make yes. everyone so much less insane if you just had <laughs> control over the experience you were having on social that's media. Right. Uh, well, Michael, thank you so much for being here. Thank it's really our pleasure. Guys. More rising right after this.